Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about the work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Louis Hugh, thanks so much for joining us in the podcast. Such an honor to have you. Thank you, Marwa. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd like to ask you first, how would you like to define yourself for the audience who may be first time listening to you? How would you like to define yourself? Sure. Well, I'm a professor of mechanical engineering here at Stanford. Um, and I think of myself as a scientist and an engineer. So I, I'm, I really want to learn how, uh, how people work, how we can best assist them with wearable robots and develop technologies that actually go out in the world and improve people's quality of life. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about your childhood. If we ask each guest about their childhood, how was your childhood brought? Because you were very passionate about what you're doing. So I'm curious how was your childhood was. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, I, I love uh, design and engineering and, and biomechanics. Um, and I guess a lot, a lot of this was evident yeah, as a young kid. Um, of course, like many engineers, I loved building things and using all the typical kinds of building toys and so on. Uh, but also, I like to get out into nature a lot and um, I spend a lot of time in little miniature civil engineering projects like building dams or new rivers and tributaries to Lake Michigan, uh, fishing and hiking and things like that. Um, and I think that that's really fed into my interest in how, how people work, uh, the biology uh, of what we do. And, but uh, also um, a deep interest in art, painting and drawing and sculpture uh, that has really, I think, been helpful in our design work uh, as, as an engineer. Um, yeah, and, and just, I, I, of course, loved experiments, science stuff, uh, you know, growing crystals and um, baking soda and vinegar and that sort of thing, the, the kinds of things that uh, my kids now really love doing. Um, so I was, I was really lucky. My parents are not scientists or engineers or anything like that, uh, but they were really welcoming of those exper- uh, experiences into our lives. And, and, and um, I, you know, like so many people in, in this profession, I benefit greatly from great teachers and uh, supportive adults. My, my grandfather was a carpenter. I loved working in the shop. Great teachers in high school um, in robotics and automation type courses. So. Wonderful. You're, you're so passionate. But uh, I guess this cue, since you have all this kind of, yeah, you're so passionate. We have all inspiration from different perspectives. And especially when it comes to design or robotics, maybe the, the question I'm curious, what could be the question when you try to see whether you have a really inspiration as you go with furniture and whatever what kind of question comes to your mind before going to building your first robot or what you already famous for as this step passive dynamics or, but what kind of question for designing what kind of thing you have to take into consideration or significant element do you think you have to consider while you think about design uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, uh, honestly, when I first started designing robots, and you mentioned these passive dynamic walking robots, that was probably my first real robot uh, as an undergraduate student working with Andorina at Cornell. Um, honestly, I just saw a video of the thing moving and thought it was really interesting and cool. And I, I knew I wanted to to work with this kind of system. Um, and just interest in the dynamics of the system drew me in. And then that first summer, uh, really, I was engaged in intuitive, unprincipled hacking. Um, we, we had a robot that had worked once, but it was really unstable in heading. And uh, my, you know, Andy welcomed me to the lab and then left for Finland for, um, he, he, he spent his summers in Finland, uh, his uh, Valsaskia uh, studies tiny wasps that live in these little islands in Finland. Anyways, so I was there with the graduate students and um, and a robot that didn't work and, and had to try to figure out something to, to, to get it uh, to function well. And um, 
I drew on inspiration from biology, looking at how humans use their arms, and intuition about the dynamics of the system to try adding arms to the robot. And, and that uh, resulted in, uh, it reduced the fluctuations in angular momentum about a vertical axis and allowed the thing to walk straight. And that was, that was the key trick. But, but really it was just sort of swinging these ideas and trying things till we found something that worked. Um, nowadays, I take a little different approach to the design of our, our robots, of course. Um, I, in, you know, most of my research now is in exoskeletons and uh, prosthetic limbs and really different from these, uh, these standalone mobile robots and in robotic systems, very complicated, challenging problems, getting legged robots to work, but we have pretty good models of most of the system. And yes, contact is very complicated. Friction is complicated, but we have reasonable models. When you start connecting a robot to a person, uh, the, the human part of the system is the main challenge. We don't really understand how people work very well. Um, and so most of our, our design process in, in my laboratory for the last decade has been focused on trying to understand what it is that the person needs from the robot and really answer that question well before we go on to making some product-like device that embeds that functionality to, to help people, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a great point. But I guess the skew bit and that first thing, so you mentioned we don't have deep understanding, but something for you for the experiences maybe it's still hard to understand or if you can, if you can, yeah, find a model or how this actually work, maybe in human and you're trying to align to what you're trying to do. What's something still hard for you to understand? Sure, sure. I, I mean, honestly, the way that animals work, including humans, is it's beyond my my comprehension. It, we're just fantastically complicated, especially in our nervous systems. And um, you know, we made a, a a lot of progress in in some of the problems of wearable robotics. I, we've you know, and we can talk a little bit more about some of the design tools we developed. Uh, for you know, emulators and human loop optimization, but um, especially when you, you're dealing with people with a, a, a disability, we really don't understand how to help people with uh, with most uh, disabilities, physical disabilities, to, to walk better yet. And this is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about and um, and grappling with. Uh, and I hope that we make progress in the next five or 10 years, but uh, I'm, in a few areas, I'm a little bit stumped, I have to admit. What could be straight off when it comes to designing, what to try to do in, in designing exoskeleton, for example, the design procedure, what is the trade off that you still, you can't really avoid when it comes to design? Sure. Well, I, I think the, the way that um, I like to think about this is uh, you, you you can break down the, the, the benefits of an exoskeleton, the, the net benefit into two pieces. One is what, um, what good happens when the device does its thing, when it assists you. That's the positive part. And, and what's the, the downside of putting it on before it starts helping you? So these things are heavy and bulky, uh, trying to minimize that, but they, they have some weight and, and take up some space. And that interferes with your normal movements. So that's a cost. That's a downside of using a, a exoskeleton. And then when you turn on the motors, hopefully if the controller is working well, it maybe makes it easier to walk, helps you walk faster, improves your balance, things like that. And that's the, the positive. And, and the, uh, the net effect, what you care about is the balance between those two things. So and in general, the more the device benefits you when you turn on, well, the heavier it's going to be and more bulky and, and the higher the cost to put it on in the first place. So uh, we're still um, trying to trying to uh, identify the, the best trade-offs uh, between those two factors. And the way we've tried to tackle this problem in our lab is, is first really try to maximize the benefits. So instead of spending a lot of time working on specialized device design, uh, you know, I, I, I know that you've spoken with a lot of uh, amazing engineers and scientists who've developed 
high power density robotic devices and things like that, we have we have first said, all right, you know, people are pretty good at this, and it's a fun problem, and it's what got me excited about engineering and science in the first place. But the real big challenge that we need to solve first is to figure out what the device should do to help the person. And so instead of making those cool product-like things, we first spent several years developing these versatile laboratory-based emulator systems. So these are tethered to, you've got, you wear this little bit of device on your body, but they're tethered to these powerful off-board motors and computers. Uh, so you can never take it out of the lab. It's not a thing you can wear around, but uh, you can try out your new idea for what a device should do really quickly. Uh, you just It's a matter of programming some code. And so realistically, when you're really good at using these things, uh, days or weeks of development time before you have tests on a person. And um, most of the time when you test something, it's gonna fail, right? You, this is a popular area and you can look at the literature, thousands of papers published in this area uh, every year. And the vast majority, 99, 0.9% uh, don't actually deliver a benefit to the user in the end, right? So it's okay, we should expect, you know, we're, we're trying to uh, get this desirable effect in a very complicated system, which is the person. Very hard to predict what's gonna happen. Most of what we try is gonna fail, that's okay. We just need to fail fast, try lots of things so we can find what works quicker. And so first, we you know we worked on, on these uh, hardware systems to make that easier, and then worked on software approaches, uh, human loop optimization, algorithms for, improving our guesses so that we're not just, it's not just the designer that's making the guesses, but we're uh, using the past information of things that we've already tested to you know, test the, the most promising next design uh, so that we can navigate that space a little bit faster. And um, so that's really where we focused on trying to, trying to answer the question of what does the person need before we got to the question of, now how do you put it into a device that doesn't weigh too much uh, or occupy too much space on your leg. But fortunately, we we're, we're now getting to that point. Um, we've, in the last few years, we've had really, uh, you know, I, I'm very happy with, with the, the uh, advancements we made. For example, reducing the energy cost of walking by 50% uh, compared to the device turned off, or increasing self-selected walking speed by 40% uh, compared to the device turned off or normal shoes. And so now we're starting to see these really big benefits of the assistance. We've started to shift our focus to putting that functionality into these efficient, low mass, untethered devices. But I'm just ask you again, because I think the point you mentioned about asking the right question, I, I think that you, you ask a lot of questions. I think that's, that's something I think in research, how we can make sure what we do is beneficial to the user. And that, that what's trying to do. How do you figure out this right questions? For example, because I, th I think in research we have a lot of pressure sometimes to, to demonstrate something and you mentioned it may not useful. So how do you use kind of the approaches to solve something that could be beneficial to the user and figure out the, the right question or, or how, yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, we have the benefit uh, in our area of being able to ask people what they want. And, um, and, and we also have our own experience with mobility and, and have a sense of what we kind of want. And there's a, a great deal of uh, literature investigating this, um, you know, this sort of, I don't know, economics perspective of gate. What do people actually care about? What do they adapt in order to, uh, to gain? And um, people care, uh, if, if, if you're in pain, people care a great deal about trying to reduce or eliminate pain. If you're at risk of, say, falling, people care a great deal about uh, trying to reduce that risk. Uh, unfortunately, these are really hard problems to, to solve, and, and as a field, we, we've made little progress, uh, honestly, although it's these are important areas and things that we're starting to shift our focus to. Um, and then there's things that people evidently care about because of the task. They, they care about uh, moving quickly if you're trying to get from one point to another, and doing so with as little energy 
as possible. And people do all kinds of little tricks to avoid consuming unnecessary energy down to swinging their arms. Uh, uh, I, I mentioned that, you know, that the arms on that robot that got me started in research. Well, if you watch people move their arms as they walk around, it's kind of a strange thing, right? The, the arms aren't um, explicitly implicated in walking on the ground, but we, we still swing them instead of, say, putting them in our pockets or, or whatever. And it turns out that that movement also saves us energy, just about 7% uh, energy cost compared to um, keeping them in your pockets. So anyways, so you can kind of infer some of the things people really care about and then uh, try to make devices that deliver those uh, those benefits. And then, of course, before you get to a product that someone will actually buy and use in their daily life, then there's a, a, a whole laundry list of problems, practical problems that have to be solved that we're not really uh, grappling with yet. Like the device should do something sensible no matter what you do. And if you think about all the things you've done today since you got up, um, walking around and sitting and... I don't know, driving a car, whatever, whatever they are, uh, you know, that your device, I mean, maybe doesn't help you with everything, but at least needs to not make those things harder. Well, that's a, that's a bit of a trick. And, and we've really not gotten to the point, I think, uh, of, of being able to handle that, that wide um, set of tasks um, well yet. And probably that's this very applied research that may even happen a lot in, in the in industry. In those kinds of collaborations. Um, yeah. yeah. But I guess this cue again to the limitation where we have to go that you achieve what you want for the designing. Do you think uh, the way the designing that you mentioned sometime by inspiration or biomaker, do you think we have to go something beyond that when it comes to designing artificial parts, for example, in that case? Do, do you think that something, the way of the designing should be beyond what we have? Our own? Do you think we can enhance the development of something? Does it make sense to to go beyond what we have already? Yeah. Sure. Uh, yes. So, I mean, I, I think we should draw on inspiration from biology, of course. We should draw on all sources of inspiration available to us, uh, looking at all kinds of machines and designs uh, that, that people have uh, invented and things that have evolved in nature. But there's no reason to expect that the best way to assist people will be to imitate what people do when they don't have a robot attached to their body. Um, in fact, there's every reason to expect when you change the body by incorporating uh, 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 robotic elements that necessarily the optimal pattern of behavior will change as well, no matter what your objective is. Uh, it, I guess unless your only objective is to imitate the original pattern of behavior. But people care about more than that. So, um, so no, I, I don't think that uh, biomimicry is, is something we should be close to, but it is something we can draw inspiration from. And, um, you know, in many ways, our robotic systems can do a lot better than biology already. Uh, say, in terms of power density or uh, uh, bandwidth, the speed of information transfer within the body, um, you know, some sensing and computation tasks, robots are already way, way better than, uh, than people. And of course, there are some things that our robots are really quite bad at compared to biology. Um, yeah, and, you know, I, I'm sure that your roboticists can, can have, everybody has their own, their own list, but things on my list include um, using energy sources that are lying around on the ground outside uh, for, say, growing a stronger actuator when you need it, or healing when you're injured. And these are tricks that, you know, I mean, you sometimes see the gimmicky headlines in the, you know, the flashy papers, but uh, we're really, actually, really far away from being able to imitate those tricks of nature. Um, and I, I have no idea how we get there, uh, honestly. But if we combine sort of the best characteristics of the human part of the system with the best characteristics of a robotic, the robotic elements of the system that we bring to the person, then absolutely, we should be able to outperform uh, natural human performance. Mm -hmm. So maybe if, because we're still listening to you, what could be in that case, if you think about short, short term, maybe challenge or limitation, do you think currently uh, 
if you can't be but where's just like in, in the hardware do you think in ha has to have more uh, yeah like a room for improvement or where do you think exactly the point we need more to push it on well I, you know we could benefit from improvements across the board of course um I, I still think there is a great deal of basic scientific research that needs to be done in understanding what people need from their devices, especially as you look at uh, you know, each uh, different population with different disabilities or, or uh, engaged in different kinds of tasks needs something different from a robot. And we're just scratching the surface there. Um, it, it's, it's also true that individuals, you know, everybody's different. And, it, and in, in some cases, there are really big individual differences. And how do we handle that? How do we, how do we identify what, what someone really needs? And um, like I said, for some cases, we're really stumped. And I, I would love to see more people engaging with that, with that part of the problem. Uh, as we try to you know, encode these uh, assistance patterns into devices, then, of course, uh, better devices and better hardware to, to draw from and design them is, would be really helpful, uh, especially in terms of reducing the energy consumption of our actuators. Um, it, certain tasks, uh, motors or electric motors, say, are really good at, like producing power steadily at a at their ideal operating point, and you can do so with pretty high efficiency. But um, if you want to produce torque with very little movement, uh, then most of the energy electrical energy is wasted by the motor, right? And uh, you know, this is involved in lots of human movements, holding a posture or moving very slowly under high, high torque. And so, um, you know, some advances in, in actuation technology would be fantastic. And, and there, uh, there are a few really promising things out there. Uh, Electrostatic-based motors or electro-wedding motors, things like that, very cool stuff. I, uh, not an area of, of research in our lab, but uh, I'm, you know, there's some manufacturing challenges, and I hope I would love to see uh, graduate students uh, t take those take those problems on and take them into their faculty careers. Um, and you know, we've also been working on some approaches using uh, electroadhesive clutches, so also electrostatic, and the benefit there being that once you charge these elements, you don't have to keep paying with electricity. Um, they can hold a pretty high force uh, with, with a, a pretty small amount of electrical energy use. Um, and that, that, that results in some interesting control problems and system design problems that we're, that we're working on. So when it comes also to learning, I'm curious about when you're working in control learning or how, how, how do you imagine learning should look like? I mean, you have yeah for scenario that you have your own prosthetic part and you just live with that so do you think there's limitation learning here or how you how, how do you see this part learning in the person is a really really important part of this process and we we, we see this um just completed a study recently uh, one of my students katie Pogansi, uh where she had people use exoskeletons for about 10 hours which is a lot longer than most uh, of our own studies or other studies and observed how people's expertise with the device changed over that time. And when you first put on the device, if we apply our standard evaluation, you see almost no benefit from the device. And at the end of the process, you know, energy costs, in this case with ankle exoskeletons, energy costs reduced by 40%. So you get this huge benefit when you know how to use the device and when it's optimized to you. But that takes time. It took a couple of hours of exposure for young, healthy participants to, to learn how to, to use these devices expertly. And so that's a limiting factor on any of these devices that we field. I mean, you know, you're, you're gonna have to use it for hours of walking or running before you start to really get the, the big benefits. And um, we have to think carefully about how to help people bridge that, you know, that excitation energy, right? So that they can actually get into the part where it's where it's useful. Um, as we move into to trying to apply these same approaches, uh, people say people have uh, had a stroke. Um, you know, there's some reorganization of the nervous system that happens following these neurological injuries that could interact with 
learning processes. And um, so if, if a person can't adapt to use the device uh, effectively, then they can't can benefit from it, right? All the things we're trying to accomplish are on the human side of the system. So if the person isn't adapting, um, they are not benefiting, right? Uh, and in those cases where learning might be more challenging, we have to really think about what, uh, a few different ways to, to tackle that. One, one is what experiences do we need to give the person so that the nervous system can identify, oh, there's, I should learn a new approach. Uh, and you know, we can try training people with variation training or biofeedback, things like that. We've seen some cases uh, in more basic scientific research where that can be really effective. Um, and the other thing is just yeah, making sure that we are assisting in all the ways that are needed in order for a person to, to adapt uh, beneficially. It may be that um, you know, when we, with a, a, a person that has a, a large capacity for adaptation, uh, then just you know, pinging the system over here is enough. And they change the rest of their movements so that this little ankle thing is helping their knees and their hips and, and everything else. But uh, it might be, if you you're, have less capacity for adaptation, maybe we need to assist those other joints more directly, things like that. So I'm curious about both this experience that you have, have been doing. Uh, if there's any direction, to, for example, you, you're supposed to that should work in a certain way or be in the modeling or simulation. And in reality, when you try to experiment it, it was maybe counterintuitive or surprising result. You didn't expect that. Do you have any moment like that? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, the path I'm on right now is all really a reaction to a, a big experience like that as a PhD student. So as an undergraduate student, we did this passive dynamic walking robot stuff, and I was excited about it. But, you know, uh, with no offense to my colleagues, uh, walking robots, I, you know, in terms of the direct societal benefit, uh, um, so I wanted to try to apply some of these ideas in a way that could really help people more directly. And so um, I, I became a PhD student at, at the University of Michigan and started trying to apply some of these ideas to a prosthetic feet. And we had a great idea that uh, we're gonna uh, capture some energy that's normally dissipated in the spring, and then later we're gonna return it. And our passive dynamic walking models say, this should make uh, walking more efficient and save the user a lot of energy. And you know, we had some promising looking initial results um, with, people who didn't have amputation wearing like a simulator boot. But when we, after, you know, years of designing different versions of the device, we got to tests on people with amputation. And uh, what we found is that it actually made walking harder. And, and they didn't like it. So th that was, um, that was a real shock. You know, I, I coming into this as a young person, um, you have to be a little bit overconfident to try some of these crazy things, right? And uh, it didn't work out at all the way I had hoped. And uh, it really made me stop and think about, you know, the, the whole approach we were, we were employing and how we could do it differently to, to try to, to avoid that kind of thing in the future. And hence, really versatile systems where you can try lots of things because they're going to fail and, and that sort of thing. So, so that, um, you know, I, and I see this in a lot of people around me, you have these apparent failures, you have these, these uh, cases where things didn't go the way you expected, but you learn something really important from that experience that puts you on a new path and allows you to, to really advance your, your field or discover something new and exciting. So, yeah, uh, don't don't be don't be scared of those failures. Look them right in the eye, you know, and, and learn from them. I think. I like that. <laughs> yeah, but I guess it's given that case about um, when you mentioned the example. But do you think the concept of being having the resilience already? I, I'm curious in human when it comes to you try to design that in in your lab. Do you think the concept of resilience or redundancy has a room that you think? maybe can deploy it or, or uh, not not applicable in a scenario like that have redundancy or resilience yeah I, it's a that's a really good question i uh, um 
how adaptable are people? What, um, how much of a change can we make and still have people learn to perform well in this new circumstance? And that's something we think a lot about, actually. Uh, for example, you know, in one of our recent experiments, we assisted hips, knees, and ankles, both legs, with this, you know, big powerful exoskeleton, optimized assistance, and you know, trained people so they were really expert. And um, energy consumption was reduced by fifty percent. But if we throw that that same cap capability into a, a musculoskeletal simulation model, the model will suggest you should be able to reduce energy costs closer to 90% or nearly 100%. So what's happening? Why, why doesn't it happen um, in the real experiment? Well, I, you know, probably we're missing some things and there's some important functionality that's not provided by the device, sure. But there also might be some limits to how much of a change in coordination uh, that the nervous system is is ready for or you know can handle um and you know as i mentioned earlier some of, some of these um limits in in resilience could be evident in um, our less uh, exciting uh, results so far when applying really similar techniques in our prosthetic limbs for people with amputation or um, you know, very preliminary work in uh, exoskeletons among people with stroke it, yeah does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. But I guess, again, to the tools, I mean, you mentioned about simulation or modeling. I, I would like to be, because still be curious about the, the, the mechanism, how you design that, how you get, if you can, just what could be significant for you? Uh, would you think still we need to have more attention, maybe in modeling and simulation tools? What kind of the missing pieces do you think so far? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, so there's there's a really useful and important interplay between experimental work and simulation work and theoretical work. Absolutely. Um, you know, I I I'm an experimentalist deep in my bones. I'm a designer. Uh, I wouldn't believe the simulation work until I see the experiment that that uh, <laughs> that verifies it. But uh, you, we can still learn a lot and get a lot of good inspiration from simulations and mathematical models. And it, 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 just like observations of biomechanics, these are really important uh, elements in this milieu in order to make progress in the design of these devices. So where, where could we see some improvements in simulation? Right now, the, our main problem, you know, what we really want are simulations that predict human response to some new assistive device or some new mechanical environment. And we've got very few examples of actually predicting, so not knowing the answer already before you start the simulation, uh, and, and doing so with reasonable accuracy. And lots and lots of examples of simulation predictions not matching what happens with real people. So you know, broadly, we want better prediction from our simulations. And then how do we get that? Uh, there are there are a few things here. I think that uh, probably the biggest problem is our model of the nervous system, right? We we the nervous system is so complicated we basically ignore it, or 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 in many cases or we or we model it simply as a set of objectives, and we're not even sure about that. So uh, you know if we say we assume the nervous system is trying to minimize muscle activation square or something like that, then we have enough of a, uh, a set of assumptions that we can, you know, make some predictions about how the person will behave. But what if the person doesn't care about activation squared, muscle activation squared? Um, what if the person's nervous system doesn't even know what that is? Uh, you know, same, same thing with energy consumption or some of these other objectives that we talked about earlier. And then, then the, the person might behave really differently than what our simulations expect. So that's one piece, is the mo our model of the nervous system uh, and even just the objectives that the nervous system is trying to, to accomplish. Uh, we're also, our, our models of muscle are, they're all, they're all right, 
uh, but we know that they're lacking. It, we, we have lots of experimental data that aren't explained by the most commonly used muscle models. And this, is, this would be an exciting area, I think. It's something that I'm probably not going to do in, in my laboratory, but I, I would love it if somebody out there took a, um, a machine learning approach to understanding how, how muscles work and just, just test every conceivable state um, and measure force and heat rate and um, then feed that all into a, uh, a black box model. That's fine with me as long as it makes accurate predictions. Uh, as a, you know, think about the utility of that, of that kind of tool. I know there are some people that are working on projects like that right now. So I think that's really exciting and, and a potential uh, that could potentially make a big contribution in um, improving simulation accuracy. Mm -hmm. Great. But do you think when it comes to the way, I don't know, the perception, do you think it should be the design less depending on the feedback and more predictive? You mentioned imperfect, but how do you see realistically when you try to have this kind of feedback? Do you think you have to be, should, should be less relying on the feedback and be more predictive? I don't know, how do you see the process about the design itself? Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting set of questions there. So, um, yeah, so the, the utility of a predictive simulation would be that you don't have to do experiments, right? And, and that would be really, really helpful in speeding the design process. Um, in terms of using measured performance or, or user feedback out in the world while people are using devices, uh, I think that some form of that would be really essential to getting the most out of assistive devices going forward. And there are some challenges there. Uh, when you do this in the laboratory, we usually have fancy equipment, um, these big you know, $100,000 pieces of equipment that are measuring your oxygen consumption and things like that. And obviously that's not gonna work uh, for a product. Uh, fortunately, there are some ways that we can get away from this. And um, I mentioned machine learning earlier. I've been really impressed uh, surprised by how well um, some of these algorithms can estimate outcomes like energy economy just based on kinematic data from the exoskeleton. And I think it's really promising for um, predicting these, or, or sorry, uh, estimating these these outcomes in the wild. And you can imagine similar things with speed and, and so on. For some of the, um, for some things like a person's satisfaction with the device, it's a little trickier because we really want to ask the person, um, you know, questions and, and, and ask them in just the right way. But we also don't want to add to the person's cognitive load. You know, it would be very annoying if your if your exoskeleton keeps asking you over and over again, "How how am I doing? How does this feel?" <laughs> so, uh, perhaps the similar approaches will work there, or maybe we have to. Uh, discover some new ways of, of getting that, that uh, feedback um, without disrupting the person too much. Yeah. Thank you, Seba. So maybe you can go for uh, the audience question. We have three questions. So uh, the first one from Odette, he asked, what advice you would give to, uh, what advice you give young and undergraduate student who want to work um, in biomechatronics? Uh, first of all, go for it. It's really fun and a rewarding path. And I, I, I imagine in the next uh, decade or two, we'll see a lot of expansion in this area. It'd be, be a great place to, to be. Um, you know, study your dynamics and, and uh, biomechanics and uh, find, a, find a way to get, in, to get your feet in a research lab. Uh, I, for me, getting you know, this uh, NSF, uh, REU experience as, as a college student, it just changed my life. Uh, meeting, meeting grad students and seeing the kinds of problems that we're working on, uh, how the, the professor and, and team talked about these problems and what they were thinking about, the, you know, this pursuit of truth and trying to understand the world around them, just, it was life-changing. I knew that, that these, were my, these were my people. This is where I needed to be. So if you get any opportunity to get into a research lab, I would jump at it. Okay. 
So next question from uh, Kamar. He asks us the biggest problems with active prosthetic and exoskeleton is a lack of high density power sources and actuators like batteries, motors. How much does this affect the future of biomedical devices? Does your lab research about this issue too? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's th that is a, a, a real uh, problem, as as we were talking about earlier. And of course, the the higher the power and force density, the better the energy storage density, the better, right? Any improvements there will be better for not just exoskeletons and prosthetic limbs, but for all mobile robotic uh, systems. So this is an important area uh, of research. That said, uh, we already we have pretty good power density, better than muscle than skeletal muscle. Um, and so I think that probably there's a lot we can do with what, uh, what we've got already if, we're, um, if we apply it well. So, uh, so don't be, don't be uh, intimidated by that. Um, I, I, I think that I think with consumer type uh, motors and batteries, we can probably, with the right control, if they're doing the right things, uh, get products that, that really help people. Mm -hmm. He also has a question. Use a subjective assistive medical robotics. They need a lot of tweaks. After market feedback, they can predict the success of or failure of the product. How do researchers approach this problem without actually commercializing products like this? Yeah, uh, we can't, right? Uh, I mean, so uh, I think this is, uh, as your, as your, um, as a professor, as a graduate student, when you're trying to scope your research project, you, you want to find um, an area where it is, you're doing something that wouldn't be practical, be too risky for a company to handle, um, but that if you're successful, it has the potential to uh, become a tool that, that uh, a, a company uses to make better products. So um, yeah, and, and some people do research on, you know, in, uh, here in the design school at Stanford, people do research on uh, consumer response to products and trying to predict uh, positive responses and, and what features people like. And, that, and that's really valuable stuff. In, in, you don't see that as much among people with a robotics focus. And I think, you know, that's okay. We, there, we, we need to provide those folks with better tools um, that they can incorporate into products that people that people like and use. Um, but yeah, it would be nice if we could uh, also more easily field our devices. But it's so resource intensive, you know, it, yeah. to make something that is actually solves all the practical problems that it can go out into the world. Mm -hmm. Maybe a follow up question for that because you mentioned the risk. I think that's something interesting, and we have risk and ideas and also something beneficial do you think in academia it's also it's easy for you to go for risk ideas absolutely yeah i so you know everybody um has their own sort of strategy or uh, approach to these things um I, I find it most rewarding to pick a problem that is that is really hard that and why really hard because otherwise you know maybe it could be solved by industry, um, that uh, the solution to which you think could really help people and then go for it and um, avoid the pitfall of publishing lots of little incremental papers or, you know, trying to bump your H index and all that stuff. Ah, it, you know, that's, it's not, it's not rewarding. It doesn't, it doesn't fill your life with purpose. You won't be ex as excited to, to, to work on these things, and it's not good for society in the long run. So, um, so yeah, we, we try to we try to take on those high risk, high reward problems that fit best in academia. And in, as a result, sometimes it doesn't. You don't get the reward, right? <laughs> but that's that's okay. This is this is uh, this is part of the the deal of academia. And I, who was it that said, you know, if we knew what we were doing? It wouldn't be research. Maybe it was like Einstein or something. Yeah. Right. And I have a question also from Sandra. He asks us, uh, because our exoskeleton are uh, intermediary 
before autonomous robots are used uh, in any safe task? Or do you see exoskeleton being deployed in spite of robots working alongside? That's a great question. So for tasks that are uh, really consistent and repeated, stereotypical, then a, a, a standalone robot that just does that thing is going to be better than an exoskeleton, right? Um, and for tasks where there's some high degree of variability and there are perception challenges and you have to, and you need actual intelligence, not sort of like everything that falls under AI now, but like what we, what people mean when they say intelligence colloquially, um, then combining the human with the robot can win. That can, that can be an, a successful strategy because you have the person who's problem solving on the fly and coming up with creative solutions to the, to the, to the problem. Um, and you have those benefits of the exoskeleton of say, enhanced strength or better sensing, better power. And so I think th that those are great places where, uh, especially in industry, exoskeletons can, can be really beneficial. Mm -hmm. And also the question, how do you think exoskeleton advancement can contribute to reducing um, muscular or a skeletal disorder like reducing stress and vulnerable bones like the spine, etc. Yeah, I, I think exoskeletons are going to prove in the long run to have great potential to reduce injury risk. So uh, if, if you um, do a little bit of back of the envelope analysis uh, on the biomechanics of producing a force with your arm or your leg, what you'll quickly see is that the force in your muscles is really high compared to the force at the at your hand or your foot. Like the the weight that you're holding um, is ten times less than the force in your bicep when you when you hold something steadily. And so most of the forces in your joints actually come from your muscles, not from the external world or your body weight. So if we can use exoskeletons to reduce the forces in our muscles that reduces loading on joints and ligaments, and that can help, say, reduce wear or uh, uh, stress-related injury, um, say, related uh, in osteoarthritis or um, lower back injuries, things like that. So I'm, I'm really hoping, and obviously, you know, it's a very complicated system, as we talked about earlier. It's really hard to predict exactly what assistance will garner those benefits, but I I am... Um, very optimistic that in the next few decades, we're going to find ways that exoskeletons provide that that, uh, that benefit to people. Mm. I have a question also from Tommy. He asks, I think that's really the first one, but what advice would you give an undergrad student looking to get into biomechatronics by themselves? So I think, I don't know if that's something already covered at the first part, but I think, yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add here. Sure. Well, I mean, the to, to get into biomechatronics, I, a great path is uh, develop strength in robotics and develop strength in biomechanics and then bring them together. Um, I, I, a lot of people get into biomechatronics with a heavy foundation of robotics and very little understanding of the human or animal side of the system. And if you've developed that strength in the, in the biology, uh, that will, uh, I think, can set you apart and you'll, you, you'll uh, utilize it a lot as you try to understand or predict how, how your uh, uh, tools will uh, affect, you know, the, the user that you're, that, you know, whose response really matters the most. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Colson, and a few questions. The first one, what could be your aspiration when it comes to your lab and when you start thinking to reach your goals? What kind of aspiration do you have in your mind or crazy ideas? I don't know if you have any kind of thoughts you, you have in mind. Yeah, well, I guess um, my current life goal in my research is uh, to be walking down the street and to pass someone using a device that is based on technology developed in my laboratory. And, you know, they won't know that I, you know, had, had a hand in that, but just to, to see uh, the tools we develop out there in the real world helping people, that's, and, and that will be a milestone that I know that we've actually on that um and you know the the uh, uh, so i feel like 
when we started a lab a decade ago, nobody divide, uh, designed any devices that actually improve performance, uh, locomotive performance for people. Um, and over the last decade, there's been a lot of progress made among young, healthy uh, individuals. And you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with, with our own contributions there. In the next decade, our focus is really shifting to, to helping older adults, people who've had a stroke, people with amputation. And um, I'll be really excited if we can get similar benefits in these populations as we've seen for, for young, healthy people. That's a, that's a, a big target. And then, um, yeah, then there's like incremental stuff about actuators and so on that we're excited about, but it isn't that sort of long-term vision. Seeing that device out in the real world, that'll be a, an amazing moment. And do you think ego is important for you as a researcher? When you have new ideas? I, ego is important for everyone. Uh, we all need our ego, our, our id, our superego. Uh, we all need a, a sense of self and um, and confidence in ourselves to try crazy things. Um, so yeah, uh, also you need humility and um, and honesty. Something that um, something that I, I it's it, it, that I notice that affects all of academia, but I notice in our field a lot is. Um, there are these, they're, they're pretty strong pressures. This is not, this is not exactly your a response to your question, but, but it's something that I think about a lot. And I, um, where there's a lot of importance placed on having the, the thing that accomplishes the, the thing, you know, the, the thing that's the breakthrough. And, you know, we're developing hardware and we want it to have been successful. And as, you know, as we've talked about, a huge portion of the time, the thing that we developed isn't successful. It's we're working on really hard problems. So it, you know, um, but there's so much pressure to to have been successful that you know we get a little motivated reasoning uh, in there. We have this this confirmation bias, and we um, we end up maybe overstating the importance of some of the things that that we developed and. Uh, I think it would be so helpful for the field or for society for us to be more ready and willing to look our bad results <laughs> it's, it's with look at those with with clear eyes and you know okay this didn't work out but we learned something from it and we're going to try something different next time and publish those negative results um it it doesn't it doesn't make you a bad researcher. It doesn't. It doesn't mean your research was a was a failure. Quite the opposite. It means that we really learned something. We've we've checked something off on our list of candidate approaches, and everybody can can learn from that. And then we we will make faster progress as a field. And it's much easier to understand the state of the field if we can be um, more honest with that, more honest with ourselves and, and each other. I think that's a very important point. I'm curious to ask you in that case, where do you think that's yeah, maybe the contributing factors to that. If it's funding or grants or culture, where does it come from? Sure, all of those things, right? We, uh, we uh, have a system that um, rewards uh, breakthroughs and, and productivity as measured by certain, um, you know, counting, right? It's easy to, to count things like how many papers and how many citations and so on and it's you know uh, you can understand how this has evolved over the last several decades um, but it does incentivize some uh, strategies that aren't in the best interest of academia as a whole or society as a whole and, and you know you if you get on social media and and um, read what your your fellow scientists and postdocs and PhD students are posting I mean got a lot of high stress there's a lot of pressure and um, a lot of self-promotion and um, how do we get away from that I don't have uh, the the magic bullet I, I don't know but I think that some, some of the things we might consider are changing our publication uh, model um, you know I've, I have to be an editor for a 
fancy journal, but I think we place a lot too much weight on publishing in fancy journals. And, um, you know, so it's kind of a brittle way of assessing impact because you've got one or two people looking at a paper and trying to guess whether it's important. And, you know, maybe it's the middle of the pandemic and they've been up all night with their kid. Maybe their kids are, are stuck home from school right there and they're watching the kids while they try to <laughs> read your draft. And um, it, so it's not, it's not very robust against misperceptions of uh, these decision makers. Whereas if you say um, base impact assessments on a broader set of uh, evaluators, by getting the work out there quickly and then getting um, feedback from lots of people, I think that could be helpful. There's a, there's a, a, a publication model that's been making its, you know, people whisper about in the background for, for a few decades now where uh, we get rid of journals and we just, everybody publishes their work. And then the, the way that you uh, develop credibility is by, is through public reviews. And I think that that kind of approach is worth considering. You see little moves in that direction from some places. That would also help with some of these issues of, uh, you know, the financial structure around publication as well. Thanks so much for saying that. I think that's very, very important point. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you, because we have a few questions, what's, what could be the most important quality? Because you are so passionate about reviewing. What could be the most important quality of maintain while being in academia? What could be you know, everybody's different and you, you could bring, you could be an incredible researcher by bringing really different qualities to, um, to your work and, and feel. So I don't, I don't think that there is one um, necessary feature, but uh, I, it, in my own work, some of the things that, that are uh, helpful are uh, having an obsessive nature, um, <clears throat> finding a problem, and then really just sticking with it, and not letting it go, thinking about it day and night. Uh, it help, helps me to, to, you know, go deep and, and make progress on things. Um, resilience, as you mentioned earlier, I think it's really important to be able to take these uh, failures and stride and keep going uh, because you've picked a goal that is important and it's, it's worth it, even, even if it's hard to get there. You know it's worth pursuing. Um, yeah, those are a couple of, of, of qualities that I, I, I think can, can be really useful. Great. So lastly, maybe what is the best advice was given to you maybe and was a life changing, maybe in, in life or career, I don't know. Best advice was given to you, yeah. That's a great question. I, I, I've been the beneficiary of excellent advice from so many people through my life. I, I've been really, really lucky. Um, and, and most of it, you know, little things that that um, that that maybe aren't generalizable or, or whatever. I, um, getting advice is great, though. I, I'd say that's you know having having mentors that that you can be honest with and uh, that you take seriously enough to like really listen to what they have to say. Um, that's that's really important. the The best advice I've had from such a mentor in the last decade uh, as a professor um, was uh, my my undergrad advisor Andrew Luna. I I was a few years into my faculty position at, at Carnegie Mellon and starting to feel those tenure pressures, right? And and it, you know my colleagues were very kind, and it it wasn't really from them; it was really from me um, feeling. I need to have all these papers. I need to have all this grant money and, and so on. And um, I, I probably can't use profanity on your on your podcast, but uh, my my advisor said, you know, forget them. You know what you want to do. You know what good science is. You know what kind of professor you want to be. Do that, and forget tenure. You know, uh, and. It's really hard to live that advice, but it's excellent advice, I think. If you're, if you're pursuing research path because you think someone else will think it's good, 
or someone else will, you know, you know, give you a certain number of check marks. That's a that's a really that's a path to uh, unhappiness and and not not making good contributions either. You have to find things you really believe in and, and pursue them vigorously. That's really that's really deep uh, and helpful. Yeah, I agree with you one hundred percent. Yeah. I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say since we're closing to the audience listening to you. I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say. Uh, no, th thank you so much, Marwa. This was great. I really had fun. Thanks a lot. I, I deeply appreciate your time. It was really inspiring and enjoyable listening to you. Thank you once again, Steve. Such an honor having you.